Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you this morning. We are going to... Um, I, I really got into where I think starting every Lord's Day with a psalm is really the only way to go. But I'm, I'm biased because that's what we're doing here. So let's spend a moment in prayer and get our hearts and minds really attuned to... Um, we'll be in Psalm 5 this morning. Our Father, we come to you this morning with our hearts uh, yearning to get away from the difficulties of this world and to be refreshed and saturated in your word, to be with your precious people, to enjoy the company of the redeemed, to enjoy the blessing of dwelling with brothers and sisters in unity, to enjoy the delights of your word, to enjoy lifting our voices to you. And so I pray as we begin our Lord's Day together. You would begin to attune our minds to the things of heaven and our hearts to the things of our God. I pray that our time in Psalm 5 this morning would be thrilling to us to see that you are a God who defends the righteous and who will judge the wicked and that we need only wait for you to bring to consummation all things. I pray you would give us the patience that we need to live this life in a way that's faithful to you while looking forward to a glorious future. We love you and thank you for this Lord's Day. Amen. So turn to Psalm 5 if you're not there already, and and I'm going to take a few minutes to get to it. We'll just start kind of high level first. I want to just talk about prayer. So far, all the Psalms we have gone through are prayers. And as I pointed out last time in Psalm 4, a proper balance in prayer helps to enrich and deepen your communication, that you're not in, in some ruts. And part of that balance is how you pray concerning those who don't follow the Lord. How do you pray for those who are openly rebellious against Him? And in my introduction to the Psalms just a few weeks ago, I brought up an uncomfortable subject, and that is the subject of imprecatory prayers. Prayers that God would render justice to the wicked. And I I think, you know, I've found in my years as a pastor, the average Christian is mostly uncomfortable with imprecatory prayer and rarely prays them. Uh, They they generally pray imprecatory prayers if it's their, you know, their wicked daughter-in-law or something like that, but not against the world in general. And we, we don't know how to say why am I in 1 Timothy 2 praying for kings and those in authority and yet we have so many examples of imprecatory prayer? So I think we're uncomfortable with it and and I've heard a lot of reasons for that discomfort. One reason I've heard is we're in an age of grace. The Bible says that God wants all men to be saved. That's true. The Bible does say that. Another reason I've heard is you can't know whether God will save someone or not, so you should never pray for God to judge those who don't follow him. That makes sense. I've heard this reason. Most unbelievers are generally good people who just need Jesus. Pray for them to take that final step to Christ. And I've heard this reason. Prayers against people are just hateful and spiteful. And so we, we get a little bit, uh, a little bit defensive of maybe those Uh, people that are wicked. We see them as we hope that they would be. But how do you reconcile that with the fact that the pattern and example is clear that there are times to pray for God to judge the wicked? 
and that this gives glory and honor to God in that you're highlighting his justice and his holiness. And so at the outset, I want to be wary of trying to appear more gracious and more holy than God is. We want to be careful of that. I want to work through those reasons because we are going to see some imprecatory prayer today. How would you answer those reasons I just gave? And these are reasons that have been given to me why you should never engage in imprecatory prayer. Let me give you a long answer to the first reason and then shorter answers to to the last three. The first reason I've heard, we're in an age of grace. The Bible says that God wants all men to be saved. That is a classic example of, of taking a verse and making it mean what you wish it would mean and with, with well-meaning intentions, I'm sure. But that's a reference to 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. That this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. So if we want to dig into that, there are two questions you have to answer. What is this in the this is good and who are the all men or all people? We have to answer those two questions. First of all, what is this? In context, this is speaking of praying for those in authority. That is good. The second question, who are all men? Well, that's a little more complex. First of all, this is a general call to salvation. And if you've been in BTI, you you understand what this means. The general call to salvation is that God calls all men to himself. And he does this through external gospel proclamation. Proclamation of of those who are explaining the gospel, either individually or in the church. That is the external call. This is the, the general call. This is accomplished by preaching. It is accomplished by evangelism. The Bible is filled with glorious invitations to come to faith in God. So many invitations. But there's also a specific call to salvation. This is described, for example, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that's the specific call. Or some theologians call it the effectual call. That that call is internal and it always is effective. The external call is rarely effective. The internal call is always effective. So who are the all people that God desires to be saved? Those that God has actually chosen for salvation. It has to be that. Those who are saved are also, the parallel uh, in the sentences, come to a full knowledge of the truth. Saving knowledge. So that's who all people are. So just so we're clear here, there's no category of person who wishes he could be saved and yet God won't let him because he's not elect. That category of person does not exist. All who are saved are of the elect and all of the elect shall be saved. There isn't that middle category. The saved are saved because God is the Savior and chooses to save them. The lost are lost because their own sin has already condemned them and they are held responsible. They've willfully refused to repent. It's the second reason I've been given that we shouldn't pray in precatory prayers. You can't know whether God will save someone or not, so you should never pray for God to judge those who don't follow him. And that sounds wonderful, but there's a faulty assumption that I must have full knowledge of someone's destiny before I can pray for them properly. Actually, by the same logic, we could also say this. You can't know whether God will eternally condemn someone or not, so you should never pray for God to save those who don't follow him. You see, it's exactly the same logic. 
There's a third reason I've heard. Most unbelievers are generally good people who just need Jesus. Pray for them to take that final step to Christ. There's no one who is generally a good person. Psalm 5 is going to make that very clear. And it's a grave theological error to picture salvation in Christ as a journey of some sort. It's not. And I want to be very clear about this. I know all of us have our stories of how God brought us um, to faith. But it's a misnomer to picture people as close to salvation or not close to salvation. And let me, let me prove this to you. If you were to judge, just from the outside, a, a man who's on his way to the city of Damascus to persecute and kill Christians, would you say he's close to salvation or not close to salvation? Of course, this is Saul. We would say, oh, he's not close to salvation at all. Well, he got saved, right? The Lord did not give him a choice. He was saved. The rich young ruler who says, I've kept the commandments. I, what one last thing must I do to be saved? Would we say close to salvation or not close to salvation? We would say, oh, he's close to salvation. He's, he's with Jesus. He's hearing all this. God did not save him. He went away sad because he wouldn't do that one thing, which was to give up the idols in his life. So that's a misnomer. The, the, there are two types of people, the saved and the unsaved. And it is not for us to judge whether they're close to salvation or not. And sure, we can pray and we understand that somebody's considering the gospel, but um, not until they step into the kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness do we know. And then the last reason I hear, prayers against people are just hateful and spiteful. And that, that may be the more difficult one to answer because it feels that way to us. But if I could gently say this, that's actually a form of self-righteousness. To say that, it's a form of saying that sin isn't really that bad to God. And God's holiness isn't really that important. Everybody's doing the best they can. Well, what is the standard? Be perfect for I am perfect. That's the standard. I would argue that to pray for God to judge a wicked person because of their sin and God's holiness is a righteous thing to do. Now, I would also argue that for you to pray against a person because you don't personally like them, there's, there's no place for that. That makes no sense. And can you pray both? Can you say, Lord, this is a wicked man. If you would be so gracious, would you please save him? If you choose not to save him, would you judge him with all the fury that would give all the glory to your wrath? Yes, you can pray both. Absolutely. For God to vindicate his own name against the rebellious is a good prayer. Because that reflects that you believe in the brilliant, white-hot holiness of God. Now, I wanted to get this in your mind because Psalm 5 gives us the first example in Psalms of a major imprecatory prayer by David. Not the whole thing. It's not even the majority of the prayer. But it does form an important part. And when, when we get to that section... There's no denying this. There's no uh, working our way. Well, David was just having a bad day. No, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired prayer for God to nail the wicked. And so we want to see how this works out in our own lives as well. Now, just to set the stage here, Psalm 5, in many ways, really just picks up where Psalms 3 and 4 left off. There's reasonable evidence that the situation for Psalm 5, like quite a number of David's psalms, is centered around the episode of his son Absalom usurping the throne of Israel and attempting to have David killed. So Psalm 3, 4, and 5, probably all the same circumstance. 
In fact, there's even reasons to believe that Psalm 5 is written the morning after Psalm 4. So you have Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 5 potentially written uh, within a 36, 48 hour period of one another. Psalm 5 has similarities to Psalm 3 and 4. David describes God as his shield in both Psalm 3 and Psalm 5. David describes his enemies as dishonest liars in Psalm 4 and Psalm 5. And and Psalm 3 calls itself a a morning psalm, Psalm 4 an evening psalm, and Psalm 5 is another morning psalm. So they literally could have been written in, in less than two days. But I'd like to divide our thoughts, and it's a longer psalm than we've done so far, 12 verses, and so we'll just work our way through it. I want to divide our thoughts into two major requests, because basically David's asking for two things. The first one is a request for God's intervention for the righteous. We see that in the first eight verses, God's intervention for the righteous. And the second request is for God's verdict for the wicked. God's verdict for the wicked. So two requests, God's intervention for the righteous and God's verdict for the wicked. So let's walk through, first of all, David's request for God's intervention for the righteous. And by the way, as we go through it, I'm going to give you two reasons for each of those requests. And we'll, you'll see it when we get to it. God's request, God's intervention for the righteous, rather. Verse 1. For the choir director, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Now, David uses a figure of speech that God would give him an ear. And we understand what that means, that God would listen to his out loud requests, things that he's saying aloud with his mouth, and by implication, his written words of request as well. And in parallel fashion, David also asked God to consider his meditation. What's that? It's a word that means my inner groanings. So already what you hear is, God, would you please hear my official out loud prayers, the things I've crafted, the words that I've thought through, and would you also hear just the deep yearning groanings of my heart that maybe don't have words? What an encouragement. David asked for God to hear his words and to hear his thoughts. In other words, David's asking, hear all the communication I have about this to you. Then David elevates, though, his desperate situation to an even higher level. Verse 2, give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Now we see three levels of prayer, so to speak. You have the inner thoughts of David. You have the outward words of David. Now you have a heightened cry for help. You have David saying, would you hear the quietest of my thoughts? Would you hear my words? And would you hear me when I'm just crying? When I'm just crying out to you for help. He's persistent. He identifies God as my king and my God. For to you I pray. What's he saying? He's saying there's no other source. There's no other hope. There's no other place he can turn. And he's confident in the Lord's help. He's confident in the Lord's answer. Why is he confident? Because David is a genuine worshiper of God. That's why he's confident. Verse 3, O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. David declares that God does hear him. This is what's called an imperfect verb. It means that God hears him multiple times. David is, is saying, you've heard me so many times. You're hearing me every time I speak to you. God is not the mythological genie who says three wishes and that's it. God hears him over and over again. And for David, God is an endless supply of help. Now, 
that may sound trite and you may just want to gloss over that, but put this in human terms. Have you ever relied on someone for help and you have to rely on them over and over again and you begin to have a sense that you're wearing them out? Or have you been the one that you're struggling with feeling like you're worn out? Well, David is asserting that God never wears out. You can ask him for help 10,000 times and he, he, he never uh, slams the door. He is an endless supply of help. But then David goes on to assert that he is a genuine worshiper. The second half of verse 3, In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Now why is this saying he's a genuine worshiper? Legacy Standard here translates, I will order and makes an inter- decision. You can see it in italics in your text there to suggest, I will order my prayer to you. If you have an English Standard Version, it says, I will prepare a sacrifice. So which one is it? There's reasons for both. David's clearly looking for an answer to prayer, so the decision to translate order my prayer makes a lot of sense. But that particular verb is never used for prayer in the Old Testament. This would be the single exception. The word order here, it means to arrange or to put something in order or to lay something down in an orderly fashion. And this makes sense if we understand how else this verb is used. In Leviticus 6, 8 and Numbers 28, 4, this verb is used of laying wood in a neat fashion on an altar to prepare a sacrifice. I think that's why the ESV goes with preparing a sacrifice. And I lean more toward the sacrifice view because David's already praying. He's already saying that. But now he's also saying that that morning he will prepare a sacrifice. What what does this mean in our terms? This means he's preparing for a more formal time of worship. He's preparing to come and appear before God, at least in some formal sense, that his formal worship, and most likely the sacrifice would be a, a, a sin offering to the Lord, is part of his waiting for the Lord's answer. I think there is a tremendous lesson right here. For you and me, it's so important to remember that in the midst of making our requests to the Lord, of asking for his help, that our basis for even being allowed to ask for help is based in sacrifice. It's based in formal worship. It's based in the sacrifice of Christ. So your, your prayer requests ought to be threaded with the gospel because it's only the gospel that, that brings you to a place where God even wants to hear your prayers. The very foundation of why God even wants to hear for, from you in the first place is centered on the cross. And so David is, is doing this. He's coming to offer sacrifice. Now, I told you we would get to this. He gives two reasons for his request for God's intervention. We're still in the request for God's intervention. Now he gives two reasons, and I'll, I'll give them to you up front. Reason number one, God's enemies receive wrath. And reason number two, God's worshipers receive reconciliation. Reason number one, God's enemies receive wrath. And reason number two, God's worshipers receive reconciliation. Reason number one for David's request for intervention, God's enemies receive wrath. Verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. So first of all, David affirms what God is not. And this is an interesting way to approach theology. He's, he's eliminating the things that God is not. God does not delight in, it's a word that means take pleasure in, in wickedness. And why is this important to us? We wouldn't think for a moment that God does. Well, remember that David is surrounded by nations who worship false deities 
who do take pleasure in wickedness, who, who, who they're, they're, they're poor people under these false gods are just simply trying to appease these deities to keep them from nailing you. That's totally different than the one true living God who does not delight in, does not take pleasure. God never delights in evil. Why is this important? And you understand this concept. If you let evil go unpunished, that is silent affirmation, isn't it? It's silent delight, an implication that God is okay with evil. David also affirms of God that evil does not sojourn with you. And this is a great word, and it's translated very accurately. Evil doesn't travel around with God. Evil is not a a traveling companion for God. He won't allow evil to exist next to him. And this helps you answer the question, by the way. When someone says, why does a good God allow evil in the world? Well, the short answer is, sin brought evil into the world, and all evil will be answered. Retribution will be given. Every single evil act will be answered for. So David has said what God is not. And then in verses 5 and 6, he asserts what God's wrath against his enemies is like. Verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. The boastful, this is a great word. It means those infatuated with themselves. They will not stand before your eyes. You know, I think this is a common misconception of unbelievers. They think that they're going to stand before God and they're going to give an emotional and self-inflating explanation of how wonderful they really are. And David says, no, they shall not stand before your eyes. They shall not inflate themselves. I like to say when someone says, well, I'll explain to the Lord such and such. I, I like to ask, why are you assuming he'll even let you talk? Why are you assuming you'll have that opportunity? David asserts, you hate all workers of iniquity. You hate all workers of iniquity. Well, so much for the Christian myth, God hates sin and loves the sinner, right? That's a Christian myth. That's not scriptural. David says God hates all workers of iniquity or evildoers. This isn't just emotion. This isn't just sentiment. It's a vehement disgust at unholiness. It's a disgust at unrighteousness. I think this helps us remember to never create a false God in our minds based on what we think God ought to be. And so little sayings like that are, are, are so harmful for, to the church because they're not true. God hates sin and loves the sinner. No, he hates the sinner. This is what scripture says. He hates the sinner. And now David will affirm the destiny of God's enemies. Verse 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood. Revelation 21.8 says that all liars have a portion in the lake of fire. That's kind of an interesting side note. The speaking of lies all throughout Scripture exists as a litmus test for your, your state before God. The state of someone's heart. The habitual liar, the manipulator, the reviler shows himself to be unregenerate. And this is all through Scripture. And why would God destroy those who speak lies? What, what's the big deal? The second half of verse 6 Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. And you notice what goes together here. Bloodshed and lying. Those two go together. He abhors, and this is a different word than hate in verse 5. The lying, wicked, violent person. Abhors means to desecrate or to make an abomination. That the lying, deceitful man who's taken many into his 
Guile will eventually be desecrated. What does that mean? He'll be exposed by God for who he really is. He'll be shown to be what he actually is. So reason number one for David's request for intervention, God's enemies receive wrath. Reason number two for David's request for intervention, God's worshipers receive reconciliation. God's worshipers receive reconciliation. And now you see a a shift. Verse seven, but as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. The abundance of your loving kindness. This is sometimes translated steadfast love. This is the classic Hebrew word chesed, which means covenant love, covenant-keeping love, loyal love. And David's making an assertion here. He's saying that he's welcome in God's house. He's welcome in God's temple. Why? Because he truly fears God. And David has received what he calls the abundance of God's loyal love. He's received grace and mercy from God. But I want you to notice something here. David has presented evidence that he is a worshiper of God, that he has received reconciliation, and that he desires to worship God in his temple. And by implication, what does that mean? It means he desires to worship God with God's people, gathered together with him in official acts of worship service to God. I think this is key to take away from verse 7. The genuine believer longs to gather with God's people Longs to worship in an official capacity. Or if I could use a word that we're not used to, but it's an important word, in a liturgical capacity. What is liturgy? Liturgy is simply the act of God's people gathering together and saying the same things, singing the same things, hearing the same things. That's liturgy. And God's people long to do that. To say that as a Christian, you're really primarily focused on your individual relationship with God and that the best way to worship God is to go up on a mountain and make a campfire and roast some marshmallows and sing Kumbaya. That's not liturgy. Liturgy is gathering together and this is what David longs to do. I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. Verse eight, O Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Now, we're going to put this puzzle together here. Not only does David know he's reconciled because of internal desire to worship God, he also knows he's reconciled because he desires to live a life of worship. Do you see what he said? Make your way straight before me. He desires to walk a straight path before the Lord. And what does this remind us as New Testament believers of? It reminds us, of course, of Romans 12. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove, approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. So, let's put verses 7 and 8 together. The reconciliation that David's received. The evidence is, David desires, listen carefully, verse 7, to worship in the house of God, and he desires to live a life of worship outside the house of God. Verse 8. Doesn't that sound like New Testament teaching? It does. So reason number one for David's request for intervention, God's enemies receive wrath. Reason number two, God's worshipers receive reconciliation. We're dividing the psalm into two major requests. I've just finished a request for God's intervention. Now we get to 
a request for God's verdict for the wicked. And we see this in verses 9 through 12, but we're going to skip ahead to verse 10. David makes his request for God's verdict for the wicked in verse 10. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the abundance of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. And what we have here is really, we could say, the anatomy of God's judgment. Of what God's judgment entails. And in fact, there's three parts to it. First, part of God's judgment, the exposure of the truth. The exposure of the truth. He says, hold them guilty. In other words, expose the lies. I I don't know about you, but I dream of the day when the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know how this will work exactly, uh, likely at the great white throne judgment, when the Lord Jesus Christ, every person that appears before him exposes what actually happened, what actually occurred, what conspiracies were actually there, what crimes actually happened. He's going to expose all of it. The second part of the anatomy of God's judgment, the entrapment of the wicked. The entrapment of the wicked. He says, by their own devices, let them fall. This is a prayer for their own sins to come on their own heads, to experience the consequences of their wicked actions. That here's what you've done, and now it's going to come back on you. The entrapment of the wicked. And here's the third part of the anatomy of God's judgment. The expulsion of the wicked. The expulsion of the wicked. David says, thrust them out. This reminds me of the description of New Jerusalem as a place where the wicked will never have access for all eternity. Revelation 21, 27 says, And nothing defiled and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Exposure, entrapment, expulsion. Did you know that's the same pattern of judgment that we see at the great white throne in Revelation 20? Exactly the same. Listen. Revelation 20, verse 11. Exposure. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. What are the books that are opened? The record of every single sin of every person appearing before the great white throne. Exposure. Entrapment. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, their own sins falling on their own heads. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Exposure, entrapment, and now expulsion. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a pretty heavy prayer. But David gives us two reasons for his imprecatory prayer. The first reason, the wickedness of his enemies. The wickedness of the enemies. And we find this in verse 9. There is nothing reliable in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. That the wicked man is by nature a liar. There's nothing reliable in his mouth. Now you might say, you know, but I know even unbelievers who have integrity and they they don't lie. And how proud they are of that, right? And when they say, I don't lie, they're lying. 
Unbelievers lie, every one of them. The wicked man is by nature a liar. The wicked man is by nature evil to the heart. He says their inward part is destruction itself. What does it mean? It means with a wicked person, somebody who is unsaved, you can't keep digging down into their heart until you come to some good core, some core of goodness that was, that was just buried so deeply under evil. No, you, you get down to the core of them. Their inner part is destruction. The wicked man is by nature a liar. He's evil to the heart. The wicked man is by nature a purveyor of words of death. He's a purveyor of words of death. Their throat is an open grave. What words of death? Words like this. You're a good person. God hates sin but loves the sinner. Jesus just longs for you and misses you. Everything that just barely misses the gospel are words of death. It's so important. You know, Charles Spurgeon said that discernment isn't understanding the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is understanding the difference between right and almost right. That's discernment. Every kind of spiritual deception have words that lead to death. The wicked man is a liar. He's evil to the heart. He's a purveyor of words of death. And he is by nature disingenuous. Disingenuous. They flatter with their tongue. This is a person who might appear religious. He might appear righteous. They might say smooth words, which is interesting. In, in Hebrew, the word for flatter means to smooth out your words, to make them smooth. You've heard this, a smooth talker. That's actually speaking of a wicked person. But deception is deception regardless of how you package it. You know, our, our little caricatures of evil and wickedness, you know, Satan with the with the, uh, the, the pointy horns and the red suit and all of that, that's a caricature. Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. And you can hear Romans 3 in this. Paul partially quoted from this verse in his assessment of the true heart of the lost person. In Romans 3.13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. But here's the second reason for David's imprecatory prayer. The worship of God's people. The worship of God's people. What a delightful ending this psalm has. Verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. May you shelter them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous one, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a large shield. These verses are pretty self-explanatory and they're, they're quite a relief from the darkness of verses 9 and 10. But look at the contrast. Look at how the righteous yearn to worship God. We're to be glad. Verse 11. David prays for those who take refuge in God to sing for joy. Not just sing joyfully, but sing for joy. We're to exult in God. This is a a glorious word. Um, Some renditions of this word mean to dance and sing before God. It It is to celebrate, to exalt God E-X-A-L-T is speaking of him. To exalt in him speaks of what we're doing. That we're celebrating. We're, we're rejoicing. We enjoy the blessing of God. So we're glad. We sing for joy. We exalt. We enjoy the blessing of God. Verse 12. And we're surrounded with favor like a shield all around us. You, you know the picture of a shield. You picture it in front of you. This is David saying, God is like a shield all around me. What favor. I want to finish our time this morning and give you two takeaways. 
First of all, so far in Psalms 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, there's something we've seen. All five Psalms are deadly serious about the difference between those in the faith and those not in the faith. Deadly seriousness in, in all five of them. We're presented with the unadulterated heavenly view of all people as being radically in one camp or the other. Servants of God or servants of Satan. It's a a very clear distinction. And what I love about this is that these Psalms really have stripped away human attempts at deceit and dishonesty and subterfuge. The souls of all are laid bare. And so it's really a a peek into the future. I think this is so important and this is something we have to push back against uh, in American evangelicalism to never fall into the trap of thinking that there is a spectrum of people. Now, what do I mean by that? That there are those far away from salvation. There are those closer to salvation. There are those Christians who are they're kind of like barely saved. And then there are those glorious saints that just are clearly saved. That is a lie. There is not a spectrum. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. There's no other type of person. Two kinds of people, no matter what religious act, no matter what put on, no matter what emotion happens, there are two kinds of people. People are not on a journey slowly making their way toward Jesus and at one point just stepping across a little bridge. No, you're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. People are not on a spectrum. Second takeaway I'd like to give you is that the last two verses give the reason for David's imprecatory prayer that compared to the wicked, the righteous are God's favored chosen ones and God will defend them ultimately. But I don't want you to miss that David places this at the end. Aren't you glad verse 9 isn't the end? There's nothing reliable in their mouth. Let's close in prayer. Now that doesn't make sense to us, does it? The description of the wicked in verse 9, the cry for justice in verse 10 isn't the end. David is encouraged by listing what the worshiping soul is like. He's glad. He's joyful in song. He's sheltered by God. He's exalting in God. He's blessed of God. He's favored of God. Now, I want to make a little New Testament connection here because I think it's so important that David ends on this. This is an Old Testament version of a description that Paul gives of every Christian in Ephesians 1.3 that we have Every spiritual blessing. And of course, with the added revelation of the New Testament, we know that this is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in whom? In Christ. So you get a little foretaste in verses 11 and 12 of this every spiritual blessing. David understood this. He understood that. He just needed more information about his Messiah. So I hope as you read Psalm 5 and consider it, that you will know that There are two types of people that you will know that it is righteous for you to pray for the salvation of the lost. We saw that in Psalm 4 and it is righteous for you to pray for the judgment of the lost. It's not your place to know who is who. It's not your place to know someone's destiny. Both are righteous prayers. They're good prayers. And my hope is that as you're reading through Psalm 5 and I hope you'll take a little time this week to review what we've talked about. My hope is that you look at our world and you, know, you can see verses 9 and 10 in the news, right? 
but you see heavenly truths in verses 11 and 12. And we end there. So always end there. Always end there. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, and David knew this. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for beginning our day just quietly looking at Psalm 5. Ephesians 1 also reminds us that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Eternity will not be long enough to say thank you. We gather today as God's elect. We gather today as your people to give all honor and glory and praise to the one who made our salvation possible, who paid the penalty of our sins. We thank you for every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. We look forward to meeting our our brother David someday. We look forward to hearing his account of what it was like to walk with you on this earth. And we look forward to uh, very possibly hearing many more psalms from his lips in in the eons to come. We thank you and praise you for this time we've had this morning. We pray that you would prepare our hearts for our more formal time of gathering together in both trembling and joy before you. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.